Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So the theme of the book of Jude, the letter of Jude, is basically, it's, it's found towards the end in chapter 21, or verse 21, excuse me. But it's really, the question is, are you keeping yourself in the love of God? And that's really the theme of, of Jude's letter here. That word keep there in verse 21, that word keep occurs five times in this chapter. It's, it's the word tereo, and uh, it also occurs one more time in a word that's similar to it. So a total of six times in this, in this one chapter, this word repeats, is repeated over and over and over again. And this is what it means. It means to watch, to guard, to keep, to obey, to preserve, and to reserve. And it all depends on where it's used in the chapter, because as we go through this, you'll see it's used in many different ways. Um, but that, they're all that. So I'll, I'll highlight them when we get to those verses. But let's begin the letter with uh, verse 1. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ, May uh, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So who was Jude? Well, we know he sells, tells us right here that he was the brother of James. James was the leader of the, the uh, church in Jerusalem, and both he and James were half-brothers of Jesus. Um, you would think being a, a half-brother of Jesus, the resurrected Lord, the founder of Christianity, you would think that they'd have rock star status within the, uh, the early church. I mean, wouldn't you? It's like, man, I want to I be by James or I want to be by Jude. And, and you look at his humility here in this letter. He doesn't say, hey, I, I'm Jesus' half-brother. Well, if it was me, I'd say, I'm his brother. You know, I'd skip the half part and just call him his brother. Um, he doesn't do that. In humility, he just says, I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. So you kind of get the heart of Jude here. Now, what's interesting about both Jude and James, the Bible teaches us that they, they actually didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They thought, you know, they, they mocked him a couple times. They thought he was a little bit loco. I mean, it's like this guy's, I mean, they went to go get him one time. They thought, this guy's out of his mind. What is he saying? They did not believe him uh, during his ministry and during his life. Um, what changed? What changed was when they encountered Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead. When they encountered the risen Savior, everything changed. Then they knew that Jesus was Lord and Savior. You know, for some of us, um, all my family's saved, so I, I'm, I don't fall into that rank, but my wife has that situation. You know, we have family members that are not saved, and probably you do too. In fact, un, undoubtedly, you have family members that are not saved. I want to encourage you to not be discouraged if your family mocks you or mocks the Lord that you serve. Don't be discouraged. It's going to happen probably, but don't be discouraged when that happens. Don't be discouraged if they think you're a bit loco because that's probably going to happen too. What I would encourage you to do is to continue praying that they encounter the risen Savior because that's what's going to transform them. Just pray that they meet Jesus. So who did uh, Jude write this epistle to? He wrote it to those who are called, which means invited, welcomed, or appointed. To those who are sanctified, means made clean or rendered pure by God the Father, and those who are preserved in Christ Jesus. And that's the first use of that word keep there. It's a word that's used in this context here, preserved. 
And then he gives us benediction, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. And I find it's kind of significant, I think, that, that Jude used uh, mercy, peace, and love because God calls you and us into a relationship with him by his mercy. He had mercy on us. We didn't deserve it, but God, by his mercy, calls us into a relationship with us. And when you and I are sanctified, when we turn to him in faith, we repent of our sins, we're sanctified, we we finally have peace with God through Jesus Christ. We finally have peace with our fellow man, and we have peace in our consciences. I remember that when I repented of my sins and gave my heart to the Lord, that clean feeling, it's like, man, that load's been lifted off. We finally have that peace that that everybody searches for. And then it's the love of Christ that preserves us. Paul wrote in Romans 8.38, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Man, it's the love of Christ that preserves us. And now the reason for his epistle. You know, it's interesting. Jude started writing a certain letter And the Holy Spirit stopped him and said, no, 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 you need to write something else. Here's what you need to write. And so verse 3 says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. The original intent of this epistle was to write about our common salvation. And again, you know, you would think Jude having that special blood relation to Jesus Christ, that that he'd have some kind of a special status, you know, as far as salvation. I mean, he's his brother, right? I mean, you know, you'd think there'd be some kind of special arrangement or something. But but Jude says, I was going to write you about our common salvation. You see, we're all equally called. We're all equally sanctified. And we're all equally preserved. There's no special, you know, you're a special Christian or you're, you know, it, we're all equally there. But as Jude's writing this epistle about our common salvation, the Holy Spirit prompts him to write about a different subject. And that subject is the need for believers to contend earnestly for the faith, to fight for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. You know, everyone is saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus alone, including Jesus' own blood relatives, even including his mother, Mary, by the way. Jesus accomplished your and my redemption on the cross once and for all. I love that in Hebrews. He died once and for all. He doesn't, he doesn't need to be sacrificed over and over again for our sins. He paid the price. It's done, finished. There's nothing to add to the gospel. And unfortunately, there's people that will add to the gospel. They say, yeah, it's fine. You need, a, you need your salvation in Christ, but you also need this. If anyone tells you it's Jesus and anything else, walk away because it's false teaching. There is nothing to add to the gospel. It's not Jesus plus anything else. Listen to what Paul wrote in Colossians 1 verse 13. He, speaking about Jesus, has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Man, you have been delivered from the power of darkness. That's a a past tense. You have been. You know, you might say, well, I'm still struggling in areas of my life. And that's true. We all do struggle in certain areas of our lives. But someone might come up to you and say, well, you know, it's because you need Jesus and 
Maybe say you need Jesus and a deliverance ministry. You need Jesus and works or whatever it is. Paul says you have been delivered from the power of darkness. You just need now to walk in that deliverance by faith and in obedience to the Holy Spirit. That's, that's the issue. So there is a serious problem creeping into the church that Jude was prompted by the Holy Spirit to write about. And that was, you know, he, he, wrote, he, he wrote that the Christians need to contend earnestly for the faith. Why? Verse 4. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of God of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Certain men have crept in unnoticed into the church. Do you remember that parable Jesus told about the, the kingdom of heaven being compared to a mustard seed? You know, and that, that mustard seed, it's, it's, it's the smallest of seeds, but it grows so large that it becomes this lofty tree and the birds of the air lodge under its branches. And you go, wow, it's, it's just the, the, the beauty of the expanse of the kingdom of heaven. And, and, and in one sense, that true, that's true. But what's interesting, Jesus just prior to that parable told the parable of the seed and the sower. And if you recall that parable, the birds of the air were evil. They were the ones that were snatching the seeds from those who had received faith. They, 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 were, they were enemies. They were like workers of Satan. And in the parable of the mustard tree, here these birds of the air, they lodge in the branches. You see, Satan doesn't normally attack the church in a full-on assault. He does sometimes. He has, like in communist countries and different places, there's been a full-on attack on the church. But what he usually does is he infiltrates for the purpose of distracting, weakening, and rendering useless. And so that's what these certain men were doing. They had crept into the church unnoticed. But they were long ago marked for condemnation. In other words, God foresaw that this would happen. Jude says they're ungodly men. They turn the grace of our God into lewdness. Your Bibles might say licentiousness. It's basically the same thing. It means absence of restraint. In other words, they turned the grace of God into a license to sin. They were denying Jesus, probably with their teachings or also in their actions, most likely both. You know, you can say you believe something, but your actions can tell whether, you're, whether you really mean it or not, whether you're telling the truth or not. Your actions reveal what you say, if it's true or not. They confirm or deny it. And so now Jude here in verses 5 through 7 gives three examples of how God dealt with people, in one case angels, like this in the past, who were like these certain men who crept in. Verse 5, But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So we have these three examples. The first example is the unbelieving children among the children of Israel in the wilderness. Listen, this is important. They had all been delivered from bondage to Egypt. They had all been led to the promised land through the wilderness. But almost an entire generation of those who had been delivered 
they didn't continue in faith, and they didn't continue in obedience. That's recorded. You can read it in Numbers chapter 14, uh, verses 27 to 37. Those unbelieving children of the children of Israel, they perished in the wilderness. You see, they started out well, but they didn't finish. They didn't finish well. That's the first example. The second example are angels that did not keep, and here's that word again, that word keep right there. They did not keep their proper domain. This is a very obscure reference, but it's probably referring to Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, where the Bible tells us about the sons of God, that in some way, I can't explain it, they had sexual encounters with the daughters of men. There's a lot of different opinions about this scripture, but I think this is what this is speaking about. And the offspring of these encounters, we're told, was a race of giants. And it's interesting because when he gets, starts talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, he says, in like manner, these went after strange flesh. So these angels, they left their proper domain, and they went after strange flesh, just like the men of Sodom and Gomorrah did. This was just prior to the flood. And the Bible says God has reserved, and here's that word again, but now it's used as reserved. God has reserved them in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. You see, they were pursuing sinful freedom and it resulted in chains of bondage for them. Evidently, these angels were so particularly wicked that they are no longer free to roam like the other. There's demons that are roaming right now, but these ones apparently were so bad that they're chained uh, until judgment. Well, these angels turned demons, think about their past. They at one time enjoyed serving in the presence of God. They were at one time his holy angels until pride entered into their leader and they rebelled with their leader, Lucifer, and they did not keep, there's that word again, they did not keep their proper domain. Instead, they chose to depart. That's the second example. The third example is the men of Sodom and Gomorrah that went after strange flesh. They committed sexual immorality. But you know what? That wasn't their only sin. In Ezekiel chapter 16, there's a prophecy regarding Sodom and Gomorrah, well, Sodom in particular. Verse 49, it says, Look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride fullness of food, and an abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. Sodom was completely a blessed city. In fact, when Lot and Abraham parted ways there back in the book of Genesis, Abraham said, hey, you know, there's, you've got too many flocks, I've got too many flocks, it's becoming an issue. Uh, You and your group of people, pick whatever area of the land you want. Wherever you go, I'll just go the opposite direction. I mean, well, that's pretty fair, right? And Lot looked around, and, the, and he said he looked at the plains of Sodom, and it was well-watered. It was great for growing and fertile ground. And like, it was like prime real estate. And Lot goes, I want that land. See, Sodom had been blessed, and they had an abundance. But just being blessed and having an abundance doesn't mean you're going to be godly. They ended up becoming disobedient, and they were judged for their sin. See, all three of these examples were of those who either had blessings, had been delivered, or had enjoyed fellowship with God, and yet they did not keep, but departed from their relationship, and they suffered judgment as a result. 
So how are these certain men Judah's describing like those of the past? Verse 8. Likewise, also, these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of what they do not know. And whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These, these are dreamers who defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. When it talks about the fact that they're dreamers, either they are false prophets who had proclaimed to have visions from God, or, I like the way John Gill, he's a commentator, how he puts it, false teachings are dreams, and those that proclaim them are dreamers. So it could be that, just that, you know. But in any event, they defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they speak evil of dignitary, dignitaries. And then Jude mentions this other obscure thing. I mean, doesn't when you read this, it's like, man, I'd love to dig into this and find out what, get more facts about this. But he mentions this other obscure event where Michael, evidently, the archangel, was disputing with Satan over the body of Moses. The body of Moses, you know, in Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 6, we're told that God himself buried the body of Moses in a valley in the land of Moab, and no one knows his grave to this day. That's what it says in the scriptures. God buried him. And so it's probable that either Satan wanted to discover and reveal where the body was buried, because, you know, Satan doesn't know everything, uh, that Satan wanted to discover and reveal where the body was buried so that the Israelites would enshrine that place and start worshiping that place. It would be, be a form of idolatry. That's, that's one possible reason why uh, Satan and Michael were contending there. Or it's also possible that Satan tried to thwart God's future plans for the body of Moses. Because remember at the transfiguration, Moses and Elijah were bodily present. They, they bodily appeared with Jesus there on the mountain of transfiguration. And Elijah, I mean, Moses' body was buried and nobody knew where it was. And Elisha, he wasn't buried. He was translated into heaven. So um, it's possible Satan was trying to thwart that or it's even possible that Moses and Elijah are going to be the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11 the two that are going to come back. And so it's possible Satan knows this. Or read, he reads scripture. He's Again, he's not omnipotent or omnipresent or omniscient. But he reads scripture. He can quote it to you, by the way. And, and it's possible he realizes, hey, that must be Moses and Elijah in Revelation 11, so I'm going to try to thwart God's plan. That, it could be. I mean, with speculation, again, wouldn't it be neat to really know? We don't. So I just have to act like I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> So anyway, Satan may have tried to thwart God's plan, and Michael the archangel was sent to fight with Satan. You know what's interesting? A lot of people make the mistake that Satan is like the equal but opposite of God. It's like the yin and the yang. You know, Satan's, uh, Satan's the dark and the evil, and God's the good and the light and everything, but that's not true at all. Satan was a created angel that enjoyed the presence and fellowship of God until pride entered his heart and he rebelled against God. If you want to compare apples to apples, Michael is probably the co-equal uh, but opposite of Satan because they both were angels that were created by God. But in any event, 
Michael, who has more power than man, because that's the point of what Jude's trying to get across. Michael, who has certainly more power than a simple man, didn't rebuke Satan himself, even though he's that co-equal with Satan, co-equal but opposite, right? He didn't rebuke Satan, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But Jude says, man, these false teachers, they ignorantly rebuke powers they don't even know anything about. And whatever they do know, man, they just defile themselves in what they do know. These certain men are like those uh, of the past in that they have gone in the way of Cain. Remember Cain? He was the uh, son of Adam and Eve, along with Abel, his brother. And uh, Cain wanted to worship God in his own way and and not how God required. And Abel offered a blood sacrifice to God, and it pleased God. God had regard for Abel's sacrifice. But Cain's offering was of the fruits of the field, the grain offerings. It sounds really good, but that's not what God required. And God didn't regard, he disregarded his sacrifice. And so Cain became angry, and that anger was directed towards his brother Abel. And he didn't deal with that anger. And that anger grew to hatred, and it resulted, and the end fruit of it was murder. And he murdered his brother. See, in Cain's heart, it all started with anger that was left unchecked. That's why the Bible always talks about dealing with anger, dealing with unforgiveness. Don't letting a root of bitterness you know, you know, rise up in your heart because the end result is murder if it's left unchecked all the way to the end. So they've gone in the way of Cain. They have run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit. Balaam was a prophet of the Lord. Very interesting, but it says he ran greedily, which means passionately run into, rush into, give oneself up to something. What did Balaam give himself up to? The love of money. Greed. Balak was the king of the Moab, Moabites. He saw the children of Israel coming through the wilderness. He saw what had happened to the, I think it was the Midianites, and, and he's like freaked out. He's like, oh man, we're next. And so he hired Balaam, or tried to hire Balaam, to curse the children of Israel. And so he would take them up on a mountain, and, and well, but even before that, uh, Balaam's like, you know, I wouldn't do it unless you, uh, even if you were to give me, you know, such amount of money, I wouldn't. and the guy's like, okay, hey, I'll give you more than that. Just come. And, uh, And God, and you know the story about the talking donkey, Um, God wouldn't let him curse the children of Israel, but you know, he was willing to do it for the sake of financial gain. He was willing to compromise for money. So Balaam, God wouldn't let him curse the children of Israel, so in the end, Balaam taught Balak how he could entrap the Israelites. He said, all you need to do is just seduce them with women. You get them in that way, you, you, you don't have to fight them. You can just get them that way. And uh, in Balaam's heart, it all started with greed that was left unchecked. You know, you know, we all deal with greed once in a while, don't we? I mean, let's be honest. We all deal with anger sometimes. But the problem is when we don't deal with it, when it's unchecked in our hearts and it grows, it gets to this point. He says, they have perished in the rebellion of Korah. Now, Korah was one of the Levites when the children of Israel were in the wilderness, and he led a rebellion against the leadership of Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. He looked at them. God had appointed Aaron as the high priest, and he's like, hey, what's so special about Moses and Aaron? Why can't I be the high priest? Why can't we offer the sacrifices? And he, and he led a bunch of people into rebellion against Moses and Aaron, a bunch of priests. Their rebellion 
was not ultimately against Aaron, but it was against God who appointed Aaron. In Korah's heart, it all started with envy that was left unchecked. And notice Jude says that these men have already perished because, you know, in God's eyes, they're already dead. These certain men will be judged, just the certain men that Jude's talking about, will be judged just as those in the past were. Look at verse 12. These are spots in your love feasts. While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves, they are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, laid autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars of whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. So first Jude describes their depravity. He says they're spots in your love feasts. Now, love feasts, it's, it was the, they were the, called the agape meals. That's what it means. And it's basically these meals that the early church shared with one another. They, they, it's probably quite similar to what we do on Wednesday nights in our potlucks. You know, we get together. The, those meals in those days were intended to bring the body of Christ together, and that's what we try to do together. It, it's, it's to bring them together in communion and fellowship, and that's one of the reasons why we do the potlucks on, on Wednesday night. Plus, I love food, you know. And, um, but it's also to make sure everyone had enough to eat in those days because there were slaves that were coming to faith in Christ and you know they were poor and wealthy alike and they were all, we're kind of, overall, I think we're probably all relatively economically in the same boat, right? We're all going down, <laughs> but you know what I mean. <laughs> we're all kind of similar. I mean, there's no super wealthy here and there's no super poor here, maybe within, you know, it's all relative, of course. But, but in those days, there were very, very poor people that were coming to faith in Christ, they had nothing. And so these meals were meant to minister to these people a very practical way with the love of Christ. So it was to make sure everyone had enough to eat. But these certain men, they were selfish and greedy, even with food. Isn't that, isn't that sad? Someone can even get greedy with food. And that's what they were doing. Uh, you know, Paul addressed a very similar issue. I mean, it wasn't just a, an isolated incident. In Corinth, there was the same issue. People would hoard food and make sure they got filled first, while the poor and the hungry would tend to be left with not enough to eat. And Paul, Paul says, hey, you wealthy people, you know, why don't you eat at home and make sure these guys get fed first? Don't put yourself first. But that was what was happening. Jude says there are spots in your love feasts. That word spots means a rock or a sandbar that's hidden just below the surface of the water. If you're, a, if you're a mariner, if you're a sailor, you, you know all about them. You've got to watch out for sandbars and rocks that are just hidden below the water because if you strike them with your ship or your boat, you're either going to sink or you're going to run aground. And that's what, Paul, what Jude is saying about these men. These certain men on the surface, they appear to have the right motives, but actually they're self-seekers. And if you get involved with them, man, they're going to they're bring you down. They're clouds without water. Man, how many farmers, you see clouds coming, you go, man, rain's coming. If you want rain, of course, you know, you're waiting for, for water and, and you see the clouds coming and, and they come by and they pass by and nothing happens. How depressing would that be? Well, these are clouds without water. They promise much water, but they don't deliver. They're empty. He says they're late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. I mean, there isn't more dead tree than that, right? I mean, that's, that's dead. Fruitless, dead, right? They're dried up, they're withered, they're shriveled, they're bearing absolutely no fruit at all. He says they're raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame. They're like untamed 
wild waves of the sea. You ever seen when the ocean is just 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 going crazy? It's it's amazing. There's there's no boundaries. They're completely driven by their fleshly desires, and they're fearlessly flaunting what they should be ashamed of. But I tell you, that doesn't speak about our culture today. People are flaunting the very things that people used to be ashamed of, but now it's just it's just out. Oh, hey, look at me, and I don't care. You have to accept me the way I am. You know, it's it's a shame, but that's what these men were like. Wandering stars of whom is reserved, and here's that word again, keep. But now it's used in the sense of reserved. Wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. So they're like shooting stars. You know, a shooting star, you see it, and it disappears off into the blackness of space. And like shooting stars, these men, they shine for a while, but they're reserved for the outer darkness of hell. They shine brightly for a short period of time, and then they burn out. If you're on the ocean and you're trying to navigate by the stars, you certainly can't navigate by a shooting star. And people that follow these type of people, these certain men, it's like the blind leading the blind. They're going to fall into a pit right after them. But Jude tells his readers, man, their judgment is sure. Look at verse 14. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment on all to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Another interesting passage here. Jude is quoting a prophecy that was attributed to Enoch. It must have been an oral tradition down to Jude's day. And it was later added into the apocryphal book of Enoch, but that book was written after Jude's time. So he's not quoting, that book is actually quoting this. That was, must have been a common prophecy in, in Jude's day because Jude's not explaining it. It's like everybody knows it, right? You've, you've heard it before. It's, you know, when I say 9-11, everybody knows what 9-11 I'm talking about. But, you know, in 1800 or so, if I said 9-11, they're like, 9-11, I wonder what that means, you know. You wouldn't know. There's no context for it. Well, the point of this quote, I mean, you know, we, we, again, we could dig into all this stuff, and I wouldn't be able to, you know, try to impress you, but I wouldn't be able to find anything more than you can. The point of this quote is that as far back as Enoch, who is the seventh generation from Adam, the judgment of those in the past and these men in the present that Jude is writing about, it was prophesied. God said it would happen. They'd be here. They'd be among us. The judgment and the existence of these men was prophesied. And Jude tells uh, his writers, or excuse me, his readers, how they're going to recognize these certain men. He says in verse 16, they're grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own life. Okay, everybody look around. You see any grumblers or complainers? No, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. (laughs) They are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts. And they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the spirit. So first of all, they're grumblers. The King James Version uses the word murmurers, and it's only used here, and it's used to describe the cooing of doves. I, I, I wish I could mimic what a cooing of, I know it's kind of a low, kind of a soft, coo, I don't know it's coo-coo, but you know what I mean? It's like, well, I'm not even going to try. <laughs> Can anybody coo like a dove up here? No, okay, no volunteers. All right. Anyways, 
this is what I imagine it sounds like. Um, it's, it's a soft, it's a low, it's kind of a calming, kind of an under the breath. It's kind of like somebody kind of murmuring, you know, they're kind of just questioning, man, what do you think about what the pastor just said? You know, do you, do you agree with that? Or, you know, or, or causing strife, man, you know, I think we should, you know, pull away for whatever it is, you know, causing strife or causing, it's all kind of like under the surface. That's what murmuring is, grumblers. But then there's these complainers. They're the ones who are like a little bit more vocal, right? They're discontent. It means one who finds fault with his lot. They're not happy. I mean, it's like they're unthankful for what God's blessed them with, and they're, they're never happy. Everything, you know, they always want more, or where, where God's blessed them, it's like, that's not good enough. I need this, or I need that. It's a, they're never content. The Bible says contentment with godliness is great gain. But these people are discontent. They're walking according to their own lusts. In other words, they are led by their flesh and not the spirit. It says they mouth great swelling words, which means they puff people up, and it's basically in order to get something from them. In other words, they're manipulators. They're smooth talkers. And then Jude reminds them that he and the other apostles warned they would come. In the last days, he says, you guys have been told in the last days there would be mockers walking according to their own ungodly lusts. They'd be sensual persons. And what that means, a sensual person, it means it's people that base their life only on what they experience from their physical senses. In other words, hey, if it feels good, how can it be wrong? It feels right. I mean, you know, so why can't, why can't I do that? That's what a sensual person is. Who cause division, division, excuse me, not having the spirit. See, not only are they out to please themselves, but other people are just pawns to gain some advantage from, and they cannot be unified in the spirit. Why? Because the Holy Spirit doesn't dwell in them. Now listen, if the apostles warned that there would be people like this in the church in the last days, and Jude's saying, hey, remember that they said that there'd be mockers in the last days? And he's talking to the men that he wrote, or the people that he wrote the letter to back then. How much more true would it be in the case of our day that there'd be mockers? And I really, truly do believe we are living in the last days. And we do see mockers. We do see this going on now. So now we know how to recognize them, How do we contend earnestly for the faith? Well, the very first step is to keep yourself in the love of God. That's the whole theme of Jude's letter. And it's that word keep again, that same word. Verse 20, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. So how do we do that? We're to build ourselves up on the most holy faith that was once for all delivered to us. You know, Jesus Christ, the Bible says, he's the cornerstone of our faith. The cornerstone is the very most important, very first thing you do when you're building a building. You put that cornerstone in. You square it up. That's Everything is measured and everything is built off of that cornerstone. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of our faith. Everything is centered on him. And then on top of that, the teachings of the apostles is the foundation of our faith. It's been once and for all delivered to you and I. You and I are to build on that foundation, however. What does that mean? Well, we're to grow in our faith. 
We're to grow not only in our knowledge of the Word of God, but also our application of it in our lives. It's one thing to know lots of Scripture, but are you living what you know? Are you putting into practice what, you're, what you talk about, and what you read and everything, and what you learn? So we're to be in the Word of God, and we're to be growing in the Word of God and applying in our lives. And then he says we're to be praying in the Holy Spirit. Well, that means praying under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. You know, a lot of times we pray, you know, we've got a plan, we've we set everything out, we've got our future designated, we've got jobs or whatever, whatever it is we're, we're, we're doing, and then we just say, God, will you bless my plans? That's not praying in the Holy Spirit. Praying in the Holy Spirit is praying what the Holy Spirit inspires you to pray. And sometimes the Bible says we don't even know how to pray as we should. There are times I've been like, man, I just, I don't know what to pray. And the Bible says when that happens, the Holy Spirit prays with our spirit and groans too deep for words. So building up your faith, building up yourself in your faith or on your faith, it includes praying in tongues. It's interesting, in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 4, Paul's teaching about uh, the church in Corinth about the gifts of the Spirit. And he talks about tongues and prophecy. And he says, He who speaks in a tongue edifies, which is the word it means to build. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. So if you're speaking in tongues, you're building yourself. That's what Jude just said. Hey, build yourselves up, praying in the Holy Spirit. So he who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets, that the church may receive edification. You see, in the, in the setting of the church, the gift of prophecy is the greater gift to be desired. Why? Because everybody's edified. Everybody, every, you know, you, you speak word of prophecy, everybody is built up by it. But in the setting of the church, the gift of tongues is lesser because only the person speaking is being edified, of course, unless there's an interpretation. And, then, and then, then everybody can be edified. But notice Paul says, man, I wish you all spoke in tongues. But in the church setting, I wish you'd prophesy more than speaking in tongues. But you see, in the setting of your own private prayer life, the gift of tongues are invaluable, invaluable in building yourself up. And I tell you what, and I speak from experience, it's a step of faith. You pray, you know, we pray to receive salvation by faith. And all of a sudden it's like, I, I do feel that load lifted, but it's not, all of a sudden it's like, you know, wow, I feel stronger. You know, I don't feel different. I receive my salvation by faith, right? I believe that Jesus died on the cross. I believe that he washed me my sins away. That's the same with receiving the gifts of the Holy Spirit. It's received by faith. It's exercised by faith. And I'll tell you, sometimes your flesh, because <laughs> I can speak from experience, your flesh rises up like, are you just mumbling? What are you doing? You're sounding like a little baby, you know? That's my flesh trying to discourage me. But I want to encourage you in the gifts of, of tongues in your prayer life. So keeping yourself in the love of God by being in the word of God, praying in the spirit, and finally, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ into eternal life. What does that mean? It means just looking for his return. Everything you do, every priority you have, focus on the reality that Jesus is returning soon. And if that's your priority, and if that's your focus, I guarantee your life, you're going to, do, you're going to make different decisions than you would if you didn't consider it that way. Those will keep you in the love of God. What's being in the love of God? It's the place of his blessing being poured out in your life. That's what it is. 
So to contend for the faith, first of all, is to keep yourself in the love of God, and then it's to do battle against these certain men, right? You know what? It's interesting. He's telling them to contend for the faith, and he never says, you know, wield the sword at these guys, expose them, kick them out. He doesn't say that. What does he say? He says, if you see a brother or sister falling into the trap of these certain men, rescue them. Rescue those that are falling for these guys. On some, he says, use the compassion of Jesus to persuade them to get back into the place of God's blessing. You know, sometimes it's just, it's the love of God that brings us to repentance. And sometimes with people, you just need to remind them, hey man, Jesus loves you. Man, you're, you're going in the wrong direction. You know, and, you, and that's enough for them to go, oh man, thanks for sharing with me. I'm, uh, yeah, will you pray with me? I mean, that's, you can do that with some people. He says, make a distinction. In other words, by the Holy Spirit, use discernment. We're all to be using discernment, by the way. But on others, you may literally have to scare the hell out of them. And I don't say that flippantly, but that's the truth. You may need to warn them that judgment is coming if they continue in their sin and they don't change. Pull them from the flames of hell that are licking at their feet. But he says, but be careful to not stain your garment. In other words, be careful that you don't fall into the same sin. Because sin is deceptive, and you know you can get caught up if you're, you know, if you're not careful. And then finally, his doxology, verse twenty-four. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. God is able to keep, and there's that word again, God is able to keep you from stumbling and present you faultless in his presence with exceeding joy. I was trying to think of, a, of an application or of a picture, a, a, a word picture to give you guys. And all I kept thinking about was a large magnet and a piece of steel. You know, think about this large magnet. The power of that magnet, it's always there. It's not changing. It's there. That, the strength of that magnet is there. It never changes. It's only when the metal is close to the magnet that it experiences that power and that strength of that magnet. When it's, when it's away from the magnet, it's, there, it, doesn't, it doesn't feel the strength of the magnet, but it comes close and boom, it's stuck. You know, That's kind of how I picture what uh, Jude is talking about, keeping yourself in the love of God And as you do that, the God who is able will keep you. See, we've seen examples here of how individuals who once experienced God's blessings wandered from the love of God because of either anger towards someone that was left unchecked or greed for money that was left unchecked or envy of others that was left unchecked. And the key word here in this whole passage, this this whole chapter is that word keep. Remember, keep, reserve, preserved. Different, different applications of it. He keeps and reserves for judgment those who reject and depart from the faith. But to you and I who are keeping, uh, but to you and I, he keeps and preserves us. But he tells you and I to keep ourselves in the love of God. You go, well, that almost sounds like, you know, an oxymoron. He's keeping us, but now he's telling us to keep ourselves. You know, Paul writes pretty much the same thing in Philippians 2 when he says to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. 
So what's the key? The key is that the love of God and the power of God is there and it's constant. God doesn't change. He's faithful even when we're faithless. And it's not based on our works. But what we need to do is we need to be in the place of his blessing. We need to be drawing near to him to receive that blessing, to be in the love of God and to not wander from it in order to receive it. That's the key. Why don't you stand up and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, I just want to pray for each and every person here. Father, I know that all of us deal with some of these issues that we've discussed. Lord, we've, we've been angry. We've been uh, greedy. We've gotten focused on materialism or, or money for one reason or the other, and it's kind of taken our sights off. We've kind of lost our focus. Lord, sometimes we've been envious of others, and that envy is just... Uh, grown into being coming discontent and grumbling and complaining. And Father, I pray that, first of all, that we repent of these things, Lord, before you. Lord, I thank you for those reminders, Lord, and that, Lord God, that we would remember that you haven't changed. Lord, if we haven't sensed the power of in, your, in our lives like we have in the past, it's not that you've changed, you've, you haven't weakened, you haven't turned away from us, Lord. It's that we've wandered from your, from your power and from your blessing in our lives. And so, Lord, I pray tonight or today that, Lord, we would find ourselves back to that place where we're keeping ourselves in the love of God. Lord, I pray for each and every person here, Lord, that they might find that as a reality in their lives this week, Lord God. I thank you for each person here, and I pray your blessing upon them. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.